Brothers and sisters, if you don't change your ways, you are on the road to Jam Nation. I'm lonely. Can't think at all. Gonna live my life. So slide over here and give me a moment. Your moves are so raw. I've got to let you know. I've got to let you know. You're my kind. Welcome back, everybody. It's finally time to reveal my personal top 10 favorite albums of 1987. For any new listeners, the prior six episodes of this podcast covered a deep dive into the albums and musical trends of 1987. And last episode, I revealed my number 20 through number 11 favorite albums of the year. Now we finally get to my top 10. But first, let me talk about the music that I used to lead into this episode. That song came from one more album that didn't quite make my top 20 list, but got very serious consideration. The song I played was I Need You Tonight, and it was by NXS, off of their massively popular 1987 album Kick. Coincidentally, NXS was another band from Australia, like the band Midnight Oil, who I revealed last episode as another band that I gave serious consideration to, but ultimately cut out of my top 20 list. And like Midnight Oil, NXS hadn't been instant stars with their musical career. NXS began as a high school band named Dr. Dolphin, which evolved into the band The Ferris Brothers, which was so named because three of the six members of that band were brothers from the Ferris family. This band was also briefly named The Vegetables. The band met Midnight Oil in 1978, and they began to be managed by the same manager as Midnight Oil. And it was actually a member of Midnight Oil who suggested the band's new name, In Excess. And the band debuted that new name in 1979. In Excess started recording in 1980, and they scored some low-level Australian hits off their first two albums. And then NXS began hitting its stride with their third album in 1982, with two songs from that album that became moderate hits in Australia, and two additional songs that were minor hits there. With that run of successful songs, the album was able to go to number five on the Australian album charts. That 1982 album also gave NXS its first crossover to American audiences, with one of the songs off that album getting heavy airplay on rock radio over here, and a second one getting more moderate rock radio play. The next album, NXS' fourth album, didn't really continue the band's success on American rock radio, but that album did take the band to the top of the Australian pop charts, with a number one and two number three hits over there. And by this point, the band had begun to be supported by American college radio stations. NXS's fifth album, Listen Like Thieves, was released in 1985, and this album really transformed the band into major stars, especially with the song What You Need, which hit the American pop charts at number five, and Listen Like Thieves went to number 11 on the American album charts. 1987, as we are focused on at this time, 
is when NXS released their massive album, Kick. Kick was NXS's career high point. The album went to number three in America, and it sold over 20 million copies worldwide, with over 6 million of those copies being sold in America. The song Need You Tonight, which I played to start off this episode, was the first and biggest single off of this album, hitting number one on the American pop charts and going top five in Australia, Canada, Ireland, New Zealand, and South Africa. In America, Need You Tonight wound up being the second biggest pop song of 1988, and the fact that it was that next year was because the initial success for this song was a bit of a slow build before it really became massive the next year. The next three singles off of Kick were all released in 1988, and all of those songs hit the American Top 10, with the song Devil Inside going to number two. Look at them go, look at them kick, makes you wonder how the other half lives. Devil inside, devil inside, every single one of us, the devil inside, devil inside. The song New Sensation went to number three, and the big ballad Never Tear Us Apart went to number seven. And by this point in 1988, the new alternative rock song chart had debuted on Billboard magazine, initially called the Modern Rock Charts. And Never Tear Us Apart would become NXS's first song to chart on that new Billboard category. I, I was standing, you were there, two worlds collided, and they could never tear us apart. In addition to those big songs, two additional songs from Kick were released in America that also charted on the rock radio charts, but didn't cross over to the pop charts. I personally loved Kick when it was released, and I still gave it deep consideration for a spot in my top 20. But ultimately, I decided to cut it off the list, basically because the hits from Kick were so massive that they have been overplayed to death while the deeper cuts off the album don't really hold any particular ability to stand up as their own underappreciated classics. In Excess was very much a pop rock band by this point in their career, and when they recorded songs that didn't have those sort of pop hooks, the songs just weren't as good. The only song on Kick that I didn't think was either trivial or overplayed to death was the song Mystified, which wound up only being a minor rock radio hit when it was originally released. So it hasn't suffered the same sort of constant overplay as the other hit songs on the album have. But Mystified does still contain all the trademarks of the best in excess hits. In all that exists, when none has your beauty, I see your face. 
Having set aside in excess, let's go ahead and dive into my actual top 10 list. My number 10 favorite album of 1987 was from R.E.M. And the album was Document. I'll note here that R.E.M. actually had two albums that came out in 1987, with the second album being a compilation of outtakes and b-sides. That album was called Dead Letters Office, and among the collection of R.E.M. song rarities are a bunch of cover songs, including three Velvet Underground songs, which just stands to underline how much of an influence that Velvet Underground had on R.E.M.'s musical style. Meanwhile, the album Document began R.E.M.'s rise from a cult band beloved by the college radio crowd and music critics to eventually becoming an actual successful pop band. And it was a signpost on the breakout of the so-called alternative music from being an underground phenomenon to becoming a popular American countercultural fad. For this reason, Document is also the album where a lot of the early hipster style of fans of R.E.M. began to jump ship a bit due to the band quote-unquote selling out. Selling out was the ultimate shame word that was used by the hipsters of the day before they were really even being described under the name of hipsters. But personally, I loved this album. To me, Document is the sound of a band that I already loved, simply growing more confident and exploring even more broadly their core influences. By this point in his career, Michael Stipe had grown as a lyricist, and he had gained confidence as a singer. So the songs on this album were no longer simply filled with attempts to make vocal sounds that fit nicely with the music. But instead, Michael Stipe actually had deliberate messages in his songs, sometimes clear, but sometimes still opaque. And Stipe showed a bit of wit to balance out his normal intellectual angst. By 1987, R.E.M. had developed into an absolute machine that could truly put some gravitas to some of the harder rocking soundscapes 
that were now beginning to be mixed in with the more pastoral, melodic jangle pop of their original sound. When you listen to early REM live recordings, it becomes clear quickly just how much of a noisy beast the band really was at their core. But they had simply not been confident enough in trying to capture that in a recording studio during their early career. By 1987, the band could unleash sonic thunder when a song called for it. The time to rise has been engaged. You better best to rearrange. I'm talking here to me alone. I listen to the finest work song. The finest But they were still also equally good at using those lovely jangly melodies as sweeteners when the songs called for them. it seems to me that the pushback that came from the alternative music purists of the time was purely because R.E.M. happened to record a surprise big hit song on this album, with that song being The One I Love. But if you actually really pay attention to The One I Love, it becomes obvious that R.E.M. wasn't recording anything that they would have thought of as a mainstream ballad. Lyrically, The One I Love is actually very cynical and dark. And I personally have no idea why anybody at the time would ever have thought of it as a particularly sweet or romantic song. This one goes out to the one I love. This one goes out to the one I've left behind. A simple cry. Occupy my time This one goes out to the one I love But despite the obvious dark overtones of the one I love, the song did become a major hit. It reached number nine on the pop charts and number two on the rock radio charts. This success helped the Catapult document to be R.E.M.'s first top ten album and their first platinum seller. With this new confidence, R.E.M. began to seek out new sounds with which to accent their songs, to try and avoid creative stagnation. And those sonic experiments led to the band swapping instruments with each other to try and find new creative directions. And they also began to bring new instruments into the band that had not been played on any of their previous albums including the use of a saxophone on the song Fireplace. Hang up your chairs to better sweep Clear the floor to dance Sweep the floor into the fire 
and the use of a dulcimer on the underappreciated deep cut song, King of Birds, which we'll play now to end this segment on R.E.M.'s document. A thumbnail sketch of Jeweler's Stone A mean idea to call my own Old man, don't lay so still You're not yet young There's time to teach Point-to-point, point-observation Children carry reservations Standing on the shoulders of giants Next is my number nine favorite album of 1987, which was by John Cougar Mellencamp, and the album was The Lonesome Jubilee. But when she got too close to her expectations, her dream burner, paper and fire, paper and fire, sticking up the ashtray, paper and fire, smoking up the The Lonesome Jubilee was Mellencamp's ninth studio album, and on it, he finally consolidated all of the components of his talent into his deepest and most impressive album. Mellencamp's sharp ear for a solid rootsy song hook was well presented on songs such as the song that I first played for this entry, that song being Paper and Fire, and that song was the album's leadoff track. Mellencamp's more topical protest lyrics are on display on this album in songs like Hard Times for a Simple Man. That's being used, being used, every spread shall fall. This frustration, gone very high, takes it out on the ones you love. The cows say, and who they gonna tell? John Mellencamp's abilities as the director and arranger for a great rock band are evidenced on this album by the fact that this album sounds much more like an overall band project than a solo album for Mellencamp, with the other players in his band all being put on prominent display with the excellent sound mix. tight band sound on this album came as a result of Mellencamp using his touring band for these studio sessions. Immediately following the band having toured heavily in support of his previous album, which was another big hit album that had been called Scarecrow. So Mellencamp's band at this time was in tight, confident shape. Mellencamp dug into his love of traditional folk music, with the instrumental arrangements on this album, emphasizing the use of instruments like fiddle, accordion, 
banjo, and other similar country folk type of instrumentation. It's likely that the folky underpinnings of this album are what drew me so strongly to it. Given my upbringing in a home with parents that were such major fans of folk music, the song cycle on Lonesome Jubilee is tightly focused and topical. It emphasizes John Mellencamp's strong affinity for middle American life, and it features songs directly inspired by his own family including the song The Real Life, which was a song that was inspired by a conversation with an uncle that had recently deceased at the time of these recording sessions. His uncle had detailed to John how he felt that we all wind up spending our lives doing what we are supposed to instead of chasing what we really want. He said my whole life I've done what I'm supposed to do Now I'd like to maybe do something for John Mellencamp had already written previous songs for two of his children, but he had another daughter who he had not yet written a song for that asked him to write a song just for her. The song Rudy Toot Toot was basically a nursery rhyme that he had written for that daughter so that she would no longer feel left out for not having her own song. So I went to the grocery store, got some steaks to go, Lonesome Jubilee was a major success both critically and commercially for John Mellencamp, another in a string of platinum-level albums for him commercially. This album went to number six on the album charts, and it sold over three million copies in America, and it became one of John Mellencamp's most popular albums in other countries, including being the best-selling album of the year in Canada. Six songs off the Lonesome Jubilee were released as singles. All of those songs I've already featured clips of here in this segment. All six of those songs were top ten songs on rock radio, and the songs Paper and Fire and Cherry Bomb were both number one on the rock charts. Three of the songs off this album crossed over to the pop charts, with Cherry Bomb being the biggest of those, going to number eight. But the deeper cuts on this album are every bit as good as the hit songs. And those hits 
still mostly sound great to my ears, despite years of heavy rotation play on classic rock radio. Let's go ahead and end this segment with one of those deep cut songs. This song is We Are The People. If your world's getting a little too tough, you know our thoughts on it. My number eight favorite album of 1987 was from The Cure, and the album was Kiss Me, Kiss Me, Kiss Me. The Cure had been gaining confidence during the decade in writing more mainstream-sounding pop songs. But so far in America, The Cure were still just a cult band embraced by college radio and beginning to gain a little bit of minor play within the U.S. dance clubs. Prior to this album, The Cure had placed four songs in the top 40 of the dance club charts in the U.S.A., but the biggest of these had still only been number 25 on what was already considered one of the more minor charts in Billboard magazine. And the band had got no play on mainstream U.S. rock stations. And their biggest pop hit to this point had squeaked in to only number 99 on the U.S. pop charts. For this 1987 double album, the Cure finally began their mainstream breakthrough to America with an actual top 40 hit, though just barely, as that song rose to the actual number 40 position on those charts. That hit song being the sentimental love song, Just Like Heaven. The song Just Like Heaven emphasized that The Cure was no longer content to just be seen as a dour, dreary goth band. If there had been an alternative music chart in Billboard at this time, as there would be starting the following year, Just Like Heaven would certainly have been a number one song on that chart, because the growing number of alternative stations in America at the time were all over this song when it was released. And the song would become an important back catalog staple of those growing number of alternative stations as they continued to increase over the next several years. The downright bubbly song, Why Can't I Be You, didn't manage to be an American pop hit, rising only to number 54. But 
That song was another minor hit for the band in the U.S. dance clubs. Kiss Me, Kiss Me, Kiss Me included songs with infectious horn section arrangements that helped to underline Robert Smith's quest to add new sonic colors to his band's sound after having started out their career with a much more minimalist punk rock style and then evolving after that to begin playing with much more lush, psychedelic-styled musical landscapes. But the horn sections on this album really opened up some new directions for the band. be the song Hot 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 that would finally get The Cure their most heavy dance club play, with that song going to number 11 on the U.S. dance charts. These popular songs that I've highlighted here helped Kiss Me, Kiss Me, Kiss Me to be The Cure's biggest American success to that point, going to number 35 on the Billboard album charts and becoming their first album in America to hit platinum sales status. Beyond that commercial success, the spacious nature of this double album let The Cure put on display a wide variety of sonic textures and moods that make this album one of their best overall song cycles. In a quirk of the technological limitations of the time, Kiss Me, Kiss Me, Kiss Me was a double album on vinyl record. But on CD and cassette, the album was released as a single piece of physical media. Cassette tape lengths were easily variable, and thus, the cassette version of Kiss Me, Kiss Me, Kiss Me contained all the same songs as the vinyl album did. But CD technology in 1987 was restricted to 74 minutes and 33 seconds, while the cassette and vinyl versions of Kiss Me, Kiss Me, Kiss Me ran 74 minutes and 35 seconds. So the record company at this time Rather than finding two or three seconds to cut out of one of the songs on this album, they instead just completely cut one song off that album. That song being Hey You. Hey you. There was also a limited edition vinyl version of this album that was released in 1987, 
that included a bonus disc with six outtake songs from the recording sessions for this album. Later CD reissues of Kiss Me, Kiss Me, Kiss Me added the Hey You song back onto the album as CD technology had evolved at that point to allow 80 minutes of audio on a single CD. I don't personally think that Kiss Me, Kiss Me, Kiss Me is The Cure's best overall album. I would personally grant that title to their following album, Disintegration. But I do think that Kiss Me, Kiss Me, Kiss Me is probably the best album to use to introduce new listeners to the band because the album covers such a wide array of what the band was all about. She used to just stand there and stand And roll her eyes right up to heaven And make like I just wasn't there My number seven favorite album of 1987 was by Zero, and the album was Here Goes Nothing. This is likely my most obscure choice for anybody that is not a part of the hippie jam band culture of the West Coast. Zero was a band out of the San Francisco Bay Area music scene. The band was formed in 1984 by former Quicksilver Messenger Service guitar player John Cipollina and by drummer Greg Anton and guitar player Steve Kimmick, both of whom had been members of the Heart of Gold band. The Heart of Gold Band had been a band that was formed by Keith and Donna Godshock after that couple had parted ways with the Grateful Dead. Zero started out as an improvisationally focused jazz rock fusion type of band. The band was initially instrumental only, but they would later add a full-time vocalist in the 1990s and begin working with Grateful Dead lyricist Robert Hunter on their songs. But at this point, we're in 1987, and this was the debut album for Zero. Here goes nothing. Half of this album wound up featuring Steve Wolf on bass, while the other half of the album features Bobby Vega. Bobby Vega would become Zero's bass player for the majority of their peak years of success within that second-generation jam band scene in the 1990s. Here goes nothing makes Zero one of the earliest of that second generation of jam bands to begin recording, though the band ultimately never became the sort of major headliners as some of the other new jam bands that were also beginning to play during this point in the late 1980s.
Though Zero was primarily instrumentally focused at this stage of their career, as I noted, there are several songs on this debut album that do feature guest vocal performances, including guest percussion player Alex Leichterwood providing vocals for a cover of the Eric Clapton song, The Core. And Donna Jean Godchalk sits in with the band to sing vocals on a cover of the song Showboat, which had originally been a song by the Heart of Gold band that Greg Anton and Steve Kimmick had come from. Showboat, sugar boat, star the wild, make a little music for the baby to smile. Showboat, showboat, you and me, we're gonna roll on down to the shiny sea to come down, down. to the sand shore. Saxophone player Martin Fierro had been a longtime member of the Bay Area music scene, having played with some of the club bands there in the 1960s, and in the 1970s, playing with some of Jerry Garcia's side bands. Fierro had also been part of a salsa band in the early 1970s, which wound up including Steve Kimmick on guitar. And both Kimmick and Fierro wound up joining the Heart of Gold band. While Martin Fierro was not initially part of the Zero lineup, he eventually did join the group after they had formed and was part of the band for most of their peak years. Fierro winds up appearing on five of the nine tracks on this debut album, playing saxophone. And Fierro also provides vocals for one song on the album, Straight Jackets. Considered the primary leader of Zero was their drummer, Greg Anton. Anton was a one-handed drummer who used a prosthetic device on his left arm in order to hold a second drumstick. Anton was the songwriter for two of the five Zero originals that are on this album, including the song Golden Road, which I introed this segment with, and also he wrote the song Tear Tags Off Mattresses. Both of these songs would remain concert staples for Zero throughout their career.
Guitar player Steve Kimmick provides the songwriting for the other three original songs by the band that are on this album, with the song Severe Tire Damage being one of those three songs that probably has stayed the most consistently in the band's live sets over the years. Here Goes Nothing isn't necessarily the best produced album on this top 20 list, nor has the band Zero yet reached their zenith of prowess as a band. But this is an outstanding document of a great underground jam band at a time when the second generation of jam bands were just in the beginning stages of emerging. And in my opinion, this is the best jam band album of the year although the selection of jam band albums was certainly limited. Let's listen to one more song off this album. This one is Zero's cover of the Jimi Hendrix song, Little Wing. My sixth favorite album of 1987 was a band that was named Dinosaur at the time, and the album was You're Living All Over Me. This was the second album by the band, but shortly after You're Living All Over Me was released, the band and their label were sued by a California-based supergroup of 60s hippie rock stars that had already been performing under the name Dinosaur. So Dinosaur wound up changing their name to Dinosaur Jr. And their label had to recall all the initial press runs of this album and print up new album covers under the band's new name of Dinosaur Jr. The band's debut album had come out in 1985 and had been self-titled as Simply Dinosaur. On that debut album, the band had shown very close allegiance to punk rock. But for this second album, Dinosaur Jr.'s sound had evolved to a much more singular, dense, muddy guitar type of sound. Though Dinosaur Jr. was not part of the famous Seattle music scene from which the music that became known as grunge emerged. Indeed, Dinosaur Jr. was actually from Massachusetts. It's still very easy to hear the musical similarities between what Dinosaur Jr. was doing and the style of music that Seattle would become famous for. 
Dinosaur Jr. spent a lot of time promoting their debut album with shows in New York City. And while there, they became friends with Sonic Youth and wound up becoming Sonic Youth's opening band for a tour of North America. Sonic Youth's preferred sound engineer, Wharton Tears, was selected to be the producer for this Dinosaur Jr. album. stage in Dinosaur Jr.'s career, Lou Barlow was still a member of the band, and his presence is highlighted by the final two songs on this album, with Lou Barlow stepping in as lead vocalist for both of those songs. The final song on the album is a weird outlier song called Polito. Polito is a song which starts with Lou Barlow playing a ukulele and singing. And then after that opening section, Polito morphs into a weird abstract sound collage. Barlow would still remain with the band for their following album and the tour in support of that third album. But ultimately, he would be kicked out of the band as Jay Maskus insisted on taking sole control of the band's sound. That careful control by Maskus was already in evidence on this album, with Jay Maskus insisting on arranging the drum rhythms for each song and dictating those rhythms to the band's actual drummer, a musician who preferred to perform simply under the name of Murph. It's easy to understand the frustration that must have been felt by the other two members of Dinosaur Jr. with Jay Maskus's dictatorial-like approach to music making. But it's also hard to deny the results as the music of Dinosaur Jr. wound up being hugely influential on a wide number of emerging new bands. Not only was the band an influence over grunge bands like Nirvana, they were also seen as a chief influence on fellow pre-grunge innovators Pixies, on the high-concept art punk of Smashing Pumpkins, and they're also cited by a number of the British shoegazer bands. And beyond that, Dinosaur Jr. also managed to be an influence on the more spacious and melodic alternative bands like Band of Horses, 
or Snow Patrol. And they were also beloved by outright pop punk bands such as Blink-182. Dinosaur Jr. had a unique sound in 1987 that wound up being the initial rock that set off an entire avalanche of new music that went careening forth in several new directions. All the scabs you dread It's hard to stomach the door I know you don't have the patience To peel them off no more In a jar where you fit me All I could do was lick your hand Next, my number five favorite album of 1987, which was from Los Lobos, and the album was By the Light of the Moon. Coming three years after this longtime Los Angeles party band's major label breakthrough, How Will the Wolf Survive?, this 1987 follow-up album firmly established Los Lobos as the best and most underrated straight-ahead roots rock band in America. After beginning their recording career with an album of Spanish language music in 1978, and Lynn later taking the music critics of the time by storm with a fine EP in 1983 titled And a Time to Dance that included five well-written English language originals along with one Spanish language song and a cover of an old Richie Valens song. Los Lobos had gone on to receive absolutely rapturous reviews for that How Will the Wolf Survive album back in 1984. With such a strong breakthrough, it was pretty much impossible for Los Lobos to again surprise anybody with this follow-up album. But the three-year break from that previous album had given the band a chance to really concentrate on their songwriting and they wound up delivering an almost flawless song cycle of outstanding music that is at once fully original and unique, while also being instantly comfortable and accessible and playing into the established traditions of great American roots music. By the Light of the Moon is an album of outstanding American music that never abandons the band's cultural roots in the Los Angeles Chicano community.
This album fearlessly dives into social commentary from its outstanding opening track, One Time, One Night, which is not only one of the best individual songs of this album, and not only one of the best songs of the year, but I would personally argue that One Time, One Night stands as one of the best songs of the entire decade. It's an absolute earworm, infectious mixture of Tex-Mex country music with some high lonesome bluegrass vocal arrangements, high energy Zydeco melodies, and a fiercely honest set of lyrics that questions the accessibility of the American dream. However, this album isn't just all about deep social commentary. It also features outstanding party time anthems to the perils of romantic relationships, especially highlighted in the song about the fierce seductress by the name of Rosalie. There's also an amusing third verse to the song Shaken Shaken Shakes, a song which begins to seem as an allusion to the earthquake risks inherent in California before that third verse seems to compare the attraction of an alluring woman to those same devastating natural forces. By the Light of the Moon really seems like it should have been a huge hit for Los Lobos and made them one of the principal stars of the American roots rock scene of the time. But unfortunately, the music of this album wound up getting largely overshadowed by the success of the band's excellent work in reimagining the music of Richie Valens for the big 1987 hit film La Bamba. La Bamba gained the band a huge worldwide number one hit with their cover of that classic Mexican tune. But that success also seemed to pigeonhole Los Lobos so that a lot of their new fan base seemed to be more interested in hearing those Richie Valens cover songs, as well as more of the band's traditional Chicano music, rather than their broader array of American music styles, all of which they were equally excellent at.
Estaré lejos de ti, prenda del alma This pigeonholing of Los Lobos wound up really being America's loss. Those of us who were in the know got to continue enjoying seeing this outstanding band in nice intimate venues for many years to come, when rightfully the band really belonged playing stadiums along with roots rock stars like Springsteen and Mellencamp. Los Lobos were every bit as good of musicians and songwriters as those more popular stars were. And to me, they were absolutely one of the best live bands of the 80s and 90s. And now, my fourth favorite album of 1987, which was by Prince, and the album was Sign of the Times. I personally consider Sign of the Times to be Prince's greatest album. Times. Hurricane Annie ripped the ceiling off a church and killed everyone inside. You turn on the telly and every other story is telling you somebody died. Sister killed a baby cause she couldn't afford to feed And it was sending people to the moon In September my cousin tried reefer for the very first time Now he's doing horse, it's June uh. Prince's ever restless muse exploded forth on this 1987 double album Which came out as the first album after Prince had disbanded the revolution following a string of albums that had resulted in his elevation to major pop star status. Prince had started out his career as an innovative but somewhat controversial new style of R&B star before deciding to prove to the world that he could be a major rock star. But he quickly seemed to be disillusioned after achieving that fame and began increasingly to refuse to do what was expected of him and instead to simply do whatever the hell it was he wanted. And this album captures Prince doing a wide array of whatever the hell he wanted, and it was absolutely magnificent. Prince was always a prolific musician in his home studio, but this period of his career found him really indecisive about his next musical step. And he was once again in battle with his record company over how to proceed with his next musical reboot. Prince had recorded and shelved a huge amount of material in 1986. 
Before he wound up disbanding the revolution, Prince had been in the studio working on a new double album, with the band often included, and that album had been planned to be called Dream Factory. So there are a number of tracks on Sign of the Times, which were still from the recording sessions that included members of the revolution. Although, as I noted, even during those recording sessions, Prince was often bringing in additional musicians and only using members of the revolution intermittently in subsets of the group, working with other musicians that Prince had brought in. And other times, Prince was simply laying down all of the musical components himself. The spectacular interplay of the revolution as a band is best celebrated on this album on the song It's Gonna Be a Beautiful Night, which was mixed from a live performance of the entire band from that era. Some of the other standout tracks for the initial sessions for Dream Factory include The Ballad of Dorothy Parker. She worked a night shift Dishwater blonde, tall and fine She got a lot of chips Well, earlier I've been talking stuff In a violent room Fighting with lovers past I needed someone With a quicker wit than mine Dorothy was fast And probably the best track from these sessions was the song Starfish and Coffee, a song that was based on an old childhood school story by Revolution member Wendy and her twin sister Susanna. Susanna was dating Prince at the time of these recordings. Smile beneath her nose Baby, no one's 20 And every single day If you ask me what you had for breakfast This is what she'd say Starfish and coffee Maple syrup and jam Butterscotch cloth and a tangerine Decide on a ham If you set your mind free, baby Maybe you understand Starfish and coffee Maple syrup and jam Dream Factory wound up going through multiple iterations before it was ultimately abandoned. And the second iteration of the album also supplied some additional tracks that wound up on Sign of the Times, including the song Strange Relationship, though the version of Strange Relationship on Sign of the Times was a major remixed reworking of that song. However, also from this second iteration of Dream Factory, was the song It, which did appear on Sign of the Times as it was originally recorded and mixed for the Dream Factory sessions. Do it. 
the third revised version of Dream Factory wound up having the most influence on the song cycle on Sign of the Times, with the recording sessions for that third revision of Dream Factory providing the original version of the song Sign of the Times, which was the version of the song that was used as a single before the song was expanded for the ultimate opening track version of the album of the same name. Also recording during those third sessions for Dream Factory were the songs The Cross, Slow Love, and most importantly, these sessions supplied the song I Could Never Take the Place of Your Man, which became one of the three top ten singles to be released off of Sign of the Times. I should also note that by this time, during the third set of sessions for Dream Factory, Prince was essentially working solo on the music. The only other contributor on the song I Could Never Take the Place of Your Man was an uncredited backing vocalist who was likely Prince's girlfriend, Susanna Melvin, the twin sister of Wendy that I mentioned previously. After abandoning the Dream Factory album, Prince began new recording sessions, now planning to release an album under the pseudonym of Camille, using his upper falsetto register to record songs envisioned as being by a feminine alter ego who he called Camille, thus the album name. The Camille album has been released in recent years as a vault release after Prince's death. The recording sessions for Camille provided the reworked version of Strange Relationship that I mentioned earlier, the version that actually winds up showing up on Sign of the Times. Oh, what the hell, you always surrender. What's this strange relationship that we hold on to? Baby, I just can't stand to see you happy. More than that, I hate to see you sad. These recording sessions also supplied the outstanding Prince deep cut, Housequake. Housequake is one of my favorite of Prince's deep cut non-hit songs. But if you ain't hip to the rare Housequake, shut up already. But the most important recording from the Camille sessions would be If I Was Your Girlfriend, which is another song that wound up on the Sign of the Times album. If I Was Your Girlfriend didn't become a pop hit, but the song did well on the R&B charts, going to number 12, 
and it wound up being a very influential song that has been widely covered, probably most famously by the 90s girl group TLC. And the song's also been sampled by a number of rap stars, including Jay-Z, Tupac, and Mob Deep. After again abandoning his album plans with the album Camille, because his record company was freaking out over the idea, Prince began to put together a new album that he wound up planning to be a triple album. That album would have been called Crystal Ball. Prince's record company was still unhappy, and they insisted that he cut the project down to a double album instead of a triple. The ultimate result of those changes was the Sign of the Times album. Fourteen of the songs on Sign of the Times would have appeared on that Crystal Ball triple album, with only two songs on Sign of the Times that were actually new recordings for this album. One of those two songs wound up becoming the biggest hit from the album, probably because it was also the most typical bluesy funk song on the album, the song that was most typical of Prince's past work, that song being You Got the Look, with Sheena Easton supplying guest vocals. Sign of the Times was a sprawling and eclectic album that really gave Prince a chance to show off how diverse his talents really were. It's the album that broke down any last semblance of resistance that I myself had to Prince and finally forced me to admit just how good of a musician and performer Prince really was after having tried to stubbornly resist his charms and deny how much I was becoming a big fan of him. I was young at the time, and trying to be contrary, because being contrary seemed to be cool. But let's face it, Prince was always way, way cooler than I could ever dream of being. My third favorite album of 1987 was Sinead O'Connor, and that album was her debut album, The Lion and the Cobra. You're all wrong, I said, and they stared at the sun that man knows at sea. Back of his hand, he'll be back sometime. Oh, 
three years before the average music fan discovered the remarkable voice of this tiny but ferociously focused young woman, I was already totally enthralled by her pure raw talent, and especially for her gift for stunning vocal dynamics, able to bounce from soft and plaintive beauty on songs like Never Get Old, Or then, to go from that to deliver absolutely fierce banshee wails on a club banger like the song Mandinka. In addition to that amazing vocal ability, Sinead O'Connor also proved to be a gifted lyrical poet with depth that seemed to belie her young age. Sinead had a difficult childhood, a victim of child abuse by her mother, who also encouraged the young girl to steal from the collection plate at church. Sinead wound up spending 18 months during the ages of 15 and 16 in a reform prison after being caught shoplifting. She also wound up suffering sexual abuse by a local priest, which helped to lead to some of her later controversial public criticisms of the Catholic Church, long before that church's issues with priest's sexual abuse had become widely publicized. Sinead O'Connor poured her pain and angst into her songwriting, saying that it was her form of self-therapy before she had the resources to actually seek professional mental health care. The Lion and the Cobra received excellent reviews on its release, and it wasn't completely ignored by the music public. It's just that the notice it got, especially in America, was not really in the mainstream. The song Mandinka got solid play on American college radio, and it wound up going to number 17 on the UK pop charts. And the song I Want Your Hands On Me got played a bit in American dance clubs though it didn't wind up getting played enough to actually hit the American dance charts. And I Want Your Hands On Me also wound up getting picked up a bit on urban radio after a remix version was released that included the rapper MC Light on vocals. Well, I'm down to, you don't 
The song Troy, which acts as a centerpiece to this album on cassette, which is how I initially bought the album, or as the leadoff track to the second side of the album on its LP format, wound up becoming a surprise top five hit on the Dutch top 40. And the song also went to number 12 in Belgium. So Sinead O'Connor was picking up early fans in various corners of the Western world, but she was still primarily an underground hero after the release of this initial album. However, while Sinead might not have yet been well-known, I managed to be one of those early fans. I saw the video for Mandinka on MTV's 120 Minutes late one night, and I was interested in the powerful vocals of this interesting bald young woman. So I wound up buying this debut album and was absolutely blown away by what I heard. Some of Sinead's vocal style reminded me a bit of the vocal work of Grace Slick, who I had been a fan of ever since I was a little kid. Sinead O'Connor has claimed that she had never heard Grace Slick's music growing up, and given Sinead's age, her upbringing in Ireland, where the Jefferson Airplane were never really major stars, and the fact that Sinead came up through the twin traditions of punk rock and Irish folk music, there's really no reason at all to doubt Sinead's claim that she had never heard of Grace Slick. But none of that eliminates the fact that these two women from two very different places, both with equally fierce and outspoken feminist frustrations, both wound up seeming to tap into similar vocal realms in order to give voice to those frustrated feelings. When I lay down my After falling in love with this album, I wound up also buying a second copy of it and gifting it to my mother. My mother is a major fan of folk music and of Irish music. So, while I didn't necessarily think that my mom would be excited by the club dance beats that were found on this album, I did think that she would very much connect with the Irish folk influences and the intense poetry that Sinead O'Connor put on display. And I was absolutely right. My mother wound up keeping a copy of this album for regular play for many years after this. And she might very well have played this album even more than I did. To me, that just proves that I was right in recognizing that there was an interesting depth here to Sinead O'Connor's music that transcended normal genre classifications or generational changes. Just call me, don't call me, don't call me, baby. 
My second favorite album of 1987 was from Love and Rockets, and the album was called Earth, Sun, Moon. The mirror people want, they shall be free. The mirror people are the you and laugh at me. The mirror people know not how to cry. So they scream the mirror people scream inside. Love and Rockets had been formed by former members of the pioneering goth rock band Bauhaus. But rather than the dark, gloomy music that Bauhaus is most famous for producing, Love and Rockets quickly adopted some neo-psychedelic influences to their music, starting out with their debut album in 1985, an album which included a cover of the psychedelic soul classic song Ball of Confusion. Love and Rockets continued those psychedelic elements with their second album in 1986. But in the case of both those first two albums, those psychedelic influences supported fairly modern-sounding, dense alternative music soundscapes that still showed heavy influence of the artistic forms of punk rock and dense walls of sound that would fall in line with the later shoegazer music that would become popular in England during the later 80s and early 90s. But for this third album, Earth, Sun, Moon, Love and Rockets adopted a more of a folky vibe to their song arrangements that gave this album a distinctly Beatles-influenced vibe to it. Rainbow dies through the hole in a broken guitar Rainbird sings a song so sad in blue Like a stranded insect stuck in a bowl of glue Earth, Sun, Moon wasn't particularly successful on either side of the Atlantic, most likely because the music on it wasn't in line with much of the other music going on at the time. Perhaps the only other album it had much in common with was the debut album from World Party, Private Revolution, which is an album I'd initially expected to rank very highly on this 1987 countdown. But I found out during this project that Private Revolution had been initially released in 1986 before getting a major release in 1987. Anyway, while Earth, Sun, Moon might not have appealed to most people in 1987, it definitely appealed deeply to my own music tastes. Indeed, much like Private Revolution that I spoke of, this Love and Rockets album had a nostalgic callback to the classic 60s and 70s psychedelic pop music, but Love and Rockets fused those influences with a deep affinity for 80s alternative music styles. Thus bringing together two of my biggest musical influences since I was listening to a lot of alternative music at the time, but had never abandoned my love of that old 60s and 70s psychedelic pop. It's a thirst so hard to quench And we're waiting And we're waiting And we're waiting 
Sun Moon did get a fair amount of American college radio play, and the song No New Tale to Tell did get picked up by U.S. rock radio and wound up climbing to number 18 on the rock charts here. And the video for that song got regular play on MTV. If the alternative music charts had been in place in 1987, then No New Tale to Tell likely would have made an appearance high up on those charts. But those charts wouldn't appear until the following year, as I've noted a number of times during this 1987 project. No new tale to tell. No new tale to tell. Oh, my world is your world. People like to hear them. However, the minor success of that one song from this album was far from enough to really help the album make major sales. Earth, Sun, Moon did wind up becoming the band's highest charting album in the United States to that point, but that only resulted in the album going to number 64 on the album charts here, and the album never came close to reaching gold level sales status, and it hasn't climbed up there in the years since. However, Love and Rockets would finally achieve that level of sales success with their 1989 self-titled fourth album. For me, Earth, Sun, Moon isn't just my favorite album by Love and Rockets. It's one of my favorite albums of the entire decade. Most fans of 80s alternative music seem to overlook Earth, Sun, Moon. It certainly doesn't fit in that well with a lot of the other more famous music of that style and era. But, in my own opinion, it's an absolute sonic masterpiece. I'm not a book. And finally, my number one favorite album of the year, which is sure to anger all of the many hipster haters of this band and their mammoth fame. So I won't personally be offended if you quickly end this podcast episode as soon as you hear these words come out of my mouth. My favorite album of the year is the huge mega success by U2 called The Joshua Tree.
I get it. This album was hyped endlessly, and it had a huge string of major hit songs that were absolutely played endlessly. However, I for one am a big fan of big atmospheric music, and even more so of music that does a good job of building up anticipatory tension and then pays it off with big uplifting musical releases. The music of the Joshua Tree shares a lot of those musical and vocal dynamics to the music that I love from the Dave Matthews Band which is another band that tends to be hated by a similar cross-section of folks who think they are simply too cool for such musical approaches. The Joshua Tree puts that sense of tension and release on immediate display from the opening song, with the slow buildup of the opening guitar riffs of Where the Streets Have No Name, that build up energy and momentum, and finally explode forth with Bono's high-energy opening vocals on the album. Music history is filled with bands that got big hype, but ultimately failed to live up to it. One of the reasons that the hate for U2 is so intense is that they are a band that very much managed to live up to that hype. It's really not any fun to pick on bands that were complete failures, but it's always a boost to one's hipster ego to be the contrarian on a band that seemingly everybody else adored. She brings me white golden pearls stolen from the sea. She is raging, she is raging, and the storm blows up in her eyes. She will suffer the needle too. She's running to stand. I personally loved this album from the very first moment I heard it, and I have never been one that particularly cared if what I liked was considered cool or not. I am perfectly willing to go spelunking to find obscure music releases to love on, as has been evidenced in some of my selections for this top 20. But that's always about the music. I am always more interested in the music than I am in being cool these days. And so I am here admitting to the entire world that I love this huge mainstream popular album. And even with all the vocal haters of U2, it's not like it's all that hard for me to still find plenty of other huge U2 fans to share my love of this music with.
all that praise said, The Joshua Tree is not actually my favorite U2 album. I'd personally place it second, only in my case, I place it second behind their album War. I love the album War because that album is such an interesting crossroads between U2's early, more punk-influenced, jittery energy and their later big atmospheric arena rock sound. I do love the Joshua Tree more than the album Octune Baby, which seems to have settled in as the critics pick for U2's career best album. I, for one, love the fact that U2 went all in with open high ambitions for this album and wound up successfully achieving those ambitions and indeed exceeding any success that anybody could have possibly predicted at the time. The red, orange, gold. The Joshua Tree would wind up spending nine weeks at number one in the United States, 35 weeks in the top 10, and 120 total weeks in the Billboard Top 200 albums. It ultimately sold over 25 million copies. The album transformed U2 from being a niche band beloved by college radio and music critics and turned the band into international superstars. And the band deserved all that success. And this album is fully worthy of that level of success and praise. It's big, bold music. This entry obviously ends my long and deep dive into the music of 1987. Please join me again next episode when I plan to go off in a completely different direction with a totally different type of deep dive into music. As always, if you want to comment, criticize, question, or just say hi, you can send email to tony at roadtojamnation.com, or you can join my Facebook group, Road to Jam Nation, or you can also get a hold of me on Twitter, where I just go by my actual name, Tony Kirillic. Let's go ahead and end this episode with one more selection off of Joshua Tree, the same song that actually ends the album, called Mothers of the Disappeared. Enjoy, and hopefully you'll come back next episode, even if you hate you too.